What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. And if you aren't rocking a wildland fire pack built by Mystery Ranch, well, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, lock it up, get it together, get the right gear. Your back and your knees and everything else is going to thank you later. They make arguably the most comfortable, the most well-built, and hands down, probably the best warranty in the game. Let's just be honest with ourselves. But other than that, they make a ton of other load-bearing essentials. Say you want to go peel a trophy elk off the hill? Well, they got you covered. If you want to go... Uh, trekking across the PCT. Well, they got you covered. They make just about every load bearing essential that you can imagine. More specifically, they've got the Assault 21 and the three-way briefcase, which I am staring at right now. The reason why I'm mentioning these is because a portion of the proceeds from the sales of these packs are going to go back to the Backbone series. Oh, was this? Yeah. So the Backbone series is telling the story of Wildland Fire and it's helping those boots on the ground that are going above and beyond to push their careers to new heights. I know that training is rather expensive, but lucky for you, if you put your name in the hat for these Mystery Ranch Backbone series scholarships, well, you have an opportunity to win a thousand dollar grant to help further your career. So if you want to go find out more, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check out all they have to offer. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor, and that is going to be none other than Hotshot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. But other than kick-ass coffee for kick-ass causes, they got all of the other goodies over there at www.hotshotbrewing.com. What do I mean by that? Well, go over there and check it out because they've got all the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right and a plethora of wildland firefighter themed apparel, stickers, posters, cups, everything. You name it, they make it probably. Patches, whatever. Go over there and check it out and check this out. While you're going over there to see all of the stuff that they make, well, head over to the Anchor Point side of the house over there because there you can get some exclusive Anchor Point merch. So if you happen to be looking for one of those do rad stuff squints posters or the Fire Fiend t-shirt or one of the Bandit Brothers tees, well, it is all over there at www.hotshotbrewing.com. So once again, go over there, check it out. It's awesome. The Anchor Point Podcast would also like to give a quick little shout out to our buddy Booze over at the Ass Movement. And it is an acronym. It's a funny name. It's an acronym, actually. And it stands for the Anti-Surface Shitting Movement. So if you have a problem pooper on the crew and you want to uh, spread the good words about burying your turds, well, head over to www.firewild.com and check out all of your poo bearing propaganda needs. They've got hats, t-shirts, posters, stickers, patches, everything you need to spread that propaganda of doing your number twos in the woods the right way. Yeah. So check this out. Actually, listeners to the Anchor Point podcast will get 10% off their entire order site-wide by using the code ANCHORPOINTAS10 at checkout. So if you want to get the best in poo-bearing propaganda, go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement. And last but not least, we've got the Smoky Generation, also known as 
the American Wildfire Experience. And if you don't know what they are all about, well, they're all about telling the story of wildland fire, not just in the United States anymore, but across the world. It's a collection of over 100 of these stories. I think it's getting over 200 now, actually, but it's dating all the way back to the 1940s. So if you want to go get a little history lesson or a trip down memory lane from your peers in the field and some legendary folks that have fought fire that have preceded our generation of firefighters, well, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out. Also, they are responsible for the Smoky Generation grants. And if you don't know what that is, well, that's even more of a reason to go check out the Smoky Generation slash American Wildfire Experience because you have an opportunity to win one of these $500 Smoky Generation grants. Yeah. So if you're telling the story of wildland fire through the eyes of photography or writing or blogging or videography or anything that's telling the story of wildland fire, well, you have an opportunity to win one of these grants. I put my name in the hat for uh, one of these grants. We'll just see what happens. In fact, for the 2022 Smoky Generation grants, we're going to be announcing the winners here on the show next week. I'm pretty freaking pumped about it. And Bethany, I am so excited to hear who won these grants. We're going to read them off for all our listeners here. So once again, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out. Bethany, you have an kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Hope everybody is doing well, and I hope everybody's getting some recovery before their next roll, particularly down southwest. And still, it just like just doesn't stop down there. Anyways, uh, a lot of fires been popping off across the nation. I'm pretty sure you've seen the news, and uh, yeah, it's uh, ramping up to be a busy one. Looks like we're gonna have that thousand hour season pretty much guaranteed, almost. Well, we'll see. Hopefully not. Well, hopefully for your wallets, yes, but hopefully not for the. Uh, public lands out there. But anyways, today we have a very special episode. We are dropping episode number 100. And I figure what better way to do episode number 100 than to actually have our first ever guest back on the show. And check this out. We're going to have her lovely uh, husband on the show with her as well. So our first episode featured Nelda St. Clair. She is a veteran of the fire community. She's been she's been everywhere. Yeah. She's uh, started off in Cody, Wyoming and worked her way up. And now she is out of the game and she is doing her own thing with the realm of mental health and critical incident stress management. Yeah. She's uh, been one of the pioneers in the field when it comes to that. And uh, you've probably seen a lot of her work out there and not even realized it. Also with that, we have her husband, Ron Boyer who is a longtime hotshot. He's got 41 years in the game and he is actually a type two IC 
And he's on the show to tell uh, a little bit of story about his past. Nell is going to talk about her past and what's going on and how it compares to the fire environment today. And we're going to touch on some uh, little tips and tricks about how to prepare yourself for the long haul this season. So with that being said, I'd like to introduce my two good friends, Nelda St. Clair and Ron Boyer. Welcome to the Anchor Point. I think it does. Yeah. hundred percent. Like there's no match for like in person that you can like see each other's like, well, we had such a good time during episode one. Oh yeah. I still get calls from people that love that. Dig it. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's the best sound ever. That's how we started it off. So is that, is that like a live roll right there? It's like, are we going live roll? Okay. Live roll. Well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the anger point podcast today on the show. I've got Ron Boyer and Nelda St. Clair for a very special episode. Episode number 100. How's it going guys? Good. How are you, Brandon? Good. Excellent. Good to see you. Is everybody fat, fat and happy today? Absolutely. Try tip was good. Excellent. I love barbecue and it's my favorite. Well, and with your beautiful family too. Oh man, you're like locked in. You're like would not let Langston go. Langston, no, that's doll. scary for me. Good I'm thing so I'm fixed. <laughs> and Jackie's so cool. What a great family. Yeah, I'm very, very fortunate. That's for sure. You are. So, yeah. Hey, Nelda, turn that mic a little bit towards you, right there. There we go. Right there. Okay. Now I can hear you. There we go. So, welcome back. It's been three years. You were my first episode ever. You like inaugural launch the podcast, Nelda St. Clair, live and in the home. <laughs> Hard to believe three years have gone by. Three years. Yeah. So what's been new with you? A lot's changed in three years. Uh, when I came to the show, I just retired from 40 years with the Bureau of Land Management. And I took that following summer off. And the Bureau of Indian Affairs approached me and asked me if I would accept a contract with them as their National Critical Incident Stress Management Coordinator, which I did. And it's probably one of the best things that I've ever done. It's been incredibly rewarding um, to operate in Indian country and meet people that I otherwise would have never known. My company, Critical Incident Concepts, LLC, that I own with my business partner, Jim Duzak, has taken off and gone very well. Um, During the pandemic, we couldn't do a lot. And so we put our time and effort into writing courses about self-care, comprehensive fitness, and things that might be helpful, uh, both mentally and physically, for the wildland firefighter. And since we've had the ability to travel and, and go live on the road, we've delivered those classes. And we've also being able to build a lot of peer support capacity in Indian country. Um, I'm almost done with my master's degree, which I just started last time I saw you in organizational psych. So a lot of good things have happened. Nice. So business is um, unfortunately booming right now. Business is good. Business is good, but it's at like a, it's at a heavy toll I can imagine. I became an improved instructor for the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation and taught three basic SISM courses in Montana, South Dakota, and Oklahoma this winter. And that was a heavy toll. 
Um, those are those are difficult, challenging courses to teach, but um, we were in the heart of Indian Country, and now have about sixty-five peer supporters. So that was rewarding. It was a lot of work, and now that we're back on the road with comprehensive fitness, um, that's also been been rewarding. The travel's been tough. There's been a lot of it, but it's been good to get back out there. Yeah. So. Question for you. So in the last three years, uh, from your perspective, have you noticed like a big, like difference in like, I guess the mental health awareness and like the acceptance of uh SISM? I mean, cause back in, I don't know, not even shit, six, seven years ago, it felt like an interrogation and people were really skeptical about SISM programs. And they had that old school mentality of like not taking care of your mental health or don't come to me with your fucking problems unless you got solutions kind of thing. I mean, have you seen like a more widespread acceptance of like actually addressing these issues? I've seen a lot of positive change. Um, Our new young up and comers are more willing to talk about it. We still have our challenges. Not all citizen programs look alike and have professional oversight and standards of care. Uh, The Bureau of Indian Affairs has official policy and standard of care. And we provide oversight and make sure that what's delivered is the very best that we can do. I think the subject of mental health is out there. It's taken very seriously. In some cases, it's a buzzword and agencies react during times to to buzzwords and to things that go on. I hope it stays on the radar for longer than 18 months, mm-hmm. which is about the average for new issues as they come to light. It'll stay up on the radar for about 18 months and then kind of drop off. I hope it has some longevity to it. I hope they build some professionalism. I hope that they're very careful about the mental health professionals that they recruit. Just because somebody is a licensed mental health professional, maybe has some experience and they specialize in trauma. It doesn't mean they're the best. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean they're the person that we want for our people. So I hope that there's some careful decision making um, going into the contracts that are being awarded for the new mental health professionals. Um, we were always very careful about who we selected. And I'm very careful about who I asked to operate in Indian country. It's taken a lot of time to build trust there. Well, I mean, especially with the cultural competence thing too. I mean, you got to speak the language of not only fire, but also like Indian country. I mean, you have to. It's about mutual respect and an understanding of a culture of a traumatic injury of historical trauma, but of protective factors and a culture that has so much to offer one another. It's about native humor. And having an appreciation for how they take care of one another. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What about you, Ron? I mean, have you noticed like uh, over the course of your career? I mean, Chad, you've been in the game for quite a while. So, yeah, 41 years. This is my 41st fire season. So I've seen a lot of changes over the years. I've seen agencies, all agencies go from um, very prideful, very hardworking to um, in a position now that um, I don't think anybody would ever believe they would have reached where they're at now. 
And what I mean by that is just what the culture change and the HR issues and all of that, um, even the hiring of personnel and the lack of personnel that want to come to work nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think none of us would have saw it, thought we would have saw it in our career, but um, I would have never thought in the 40 years that it was a snapshot in time that you would never believe what you see today in the 40 years. Yeah, it's, it's, well, I mean, well, let's start actually with some background here. Cause that was kind of like a jump into you and your history, but just to provide a little bit of context for everybody who's listening at home, tell us about yourself and your career. So my career started, uh, 19, I'll just use 1980. Uh, was really funny. Uh, the way you looked for a job then was in the classified ads and there was a little ad in about a quarter inch by inch and a half box in the classifieds ad that said, Hey, come work for the forest service. We're accepting applications. I thought, well, okay, what the heck? So I went down there and put application in and long story short, they said, I put the application in and they said, Hey, why don't you come back on Monday? I said, okay. So I came back on Monday and they said, well, where, where do you, what do you want to do? And have you ever fought fire before? And I said, no, what do you think about fighting fire? Well, okay. And they said, well, you ever, you know what a hotshot crew is? And I said, well, no. And they said, okay, show up here at the Dalton hotshot station. Anyways, that's the start of it. So uh, I spent about mm, five years there, four years there with Dalton. And I went to the Prescott hotshots for a couple of years Came back to California uh, on uh, uh, LP on the Los Padres. Uh, ended up on the Los Padres Hotshots till '93, and then went back to new promoted back to New Mexico uh, to run the Silver City Hotshots '93, '94, '95, and then I took the Carson Hotshots '96, '97, and then uh, I came back to California to the Fulton Hotshots in '90 eight till 2014. From there, I went to Las Vegas. I figured, uh, in 2014, uh, just with culture change and the crew organization and, um, things that were going on in the hotshot community at that time, especially in California with the national fire plan and, uh, most efficient level buildup. We put on 20 more hotshot crews um, and we deleted the pool of one knowledge, skills and ability and capabilities and um, probably really did detriment to the effectiveness of the hotshot program. It's kind of like watered it down a little bit. You could call it watering it down. Yes. And uh, I mean, I have no frame of reference. I'm a young buck. I mean, I, yeah, this would have been in 2000. Okay. And we added quite a few crews. Uh, There was 21 total at that time in California. Uh, We added another 20 and um, basically they were pulling superintendents, captains from wherever they could get them. Right. So you, they came from within until we exhausted that. And then they reached out to wherever they could get them. So you had folks that never ran a crew that were running crews. Um, 
and and it was sad and it's unfortunate, but you know, it built capacity. Um, were they as effective and efficient as us? They might tell you different. Uh, us previous hotshot superintendents or crew folks would tell you that's not the case, but you know, they all learn and we all grow. We all um, learn how to work together. And uh, that's, that's kind of where it's at. And uh, they're still running strong. Um, but you know, today the lack of personnel that want to come to work or the kids that want to come to work aren't there anymore. We're even feeling it on where I'm working now uh, in the fire program that it, they're hard to recruit. They're hard to get. They don't want to work. Uh, if you do hire them, they last a couple of weeks and they're on to a different, better job. So you mentioned something really important there, right there. Hard to recruit, hard to retain and moving on to a better paying job. Yep. I mean, is that just a sign of the times? I mean, like, all right, I guess for context, like back when you were in your hotshot in days, like ground pounder, whatever, you know, swinging a pee, not necessarily the super or anything like that. I mean, was it a cost of living wise? Was it a equitable job? Like, were you able to make ends meet? I mean, oh, it's still yeah. harder, hard as shit, but. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you when I first started, it was a good paying job, uh, federally wise, state wise, it was a good paying job. It was a good paying job from, um, the Vietnam era up till, uh, through the eighties. Uh, and then it kind of went static, right? Cost pay locked up, pay never went up. Right. But the private sector all went up. Mm -hmm. Everything went up around us, but not the federal pay, not the state pay. Everything went up around us. Um, but you didn't do it for the pay. You did it for the hard work, for the pride, the tradition. Um, you liked the job. Uh, the camaraderie. It, it was very rewarding to do um, what we did then in those days. Um, the, the camaraderie, the bond, uh, you build lifetime friends um, was just outstanding. I mean, you didn't go anywhere without half of your crew going to wherever, right? 20 person crew. Yeah. You didn't go anywhere solo. It, it was unheard of. And then as time evolved and culture changed, um, you couldn't, you, to this day, you can't get them to go somewhere altogether. Everybody's just kind of fishes out their own, right? And you go out on your own. Um, those days, um, I think is what drove the bond and drove the relationships and uh, memories and uh, friendship, lifelong friendships that you can never replace. And I don't know where we lost that over time, but we lost that over time. And um, like I said, culture change, um, generation changes, um, I think drive a lot of that. Um, the kids now want to just go do their own thing. Yeah. And that's okay too. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, everybody's got their own thing that they got to do and what makes them tick. But I think they're like, what, what's, what they like to do or whatever. But, uh, I, I, I don't know, man. I think it's like crew dependent nowadays. I think if you have that real buy-in with the crew and there's some, like, it's just like every other hotshot crew out there. I mean, there's good ones, there's bad ones. There's a lot of camaraderie in some, and there's none in others. Right. Correct. I mean, was it like that for you or was um, it pretty much homogenous as far as like the camaraderie was all, all 
every my hotshot crew is like the best hotshot crew and we're all <laughs> going to go everywhere together we're going to have that camaraderie and we're going to roll as a team and that is correct that's that's how i fostered our environment my environment the crew environment mm-hmm. was um very close knit and uh you fostered an environment that was a family environment um and and that's what you pushed and you a fire family fire family and you want them tight you want them to uh have your back and work hard for you and work hard to fulfill the uh, mission you're doing mm-hmm. um and that takes a lot of it it takes a lot of time a lot of um effort to do but that's what we do yeah. that that's what you do as a leader you you build that organization to support itself and to defend itself and to work for itself and be successful so that they all see, Hey, we did this. Hey, we did that. Hey, we did it. Right. Um, once you bridge that gap, then you, your hook, line and sinker, you got, you're in, you're in, and, and, and every, every threat or danger lies an opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And it's being able to understand and take that opportunity at those times where you can leave a mark and where you can pick up an active flank of fire or a threat to a community and burn out from it, change the direction of the fire. Um, a lot of the times we get into what I'll call group think, right? And that's good, but it's not good. Yeah. It could be toxic or could be it beneficial. Could be toxic or beneficial, right? Yeah. But um, I came up to the culture where, you made decisions on your own and you had your crew to implement that and you did it. It wasn't and so much micromanagement. It was more like you guys got to operate independently with yeah. that self-sufficiency that you were talking Correct. about. There's no group think, no, Hey, what do you think about this? You think we ought to do this? You think you ought to do that? No, any actions better than no action. Right. Yeah. So it's being able to identify and take action and understand your action has consequences, but what are those consequences? Right. Mm-hmm. And it's understanding the consequences, um, during those times of threat or, um, danger, right. Cause it's within them lies an opportunity. It's just finding that opportunity and that, that doorway that's open to, to make an impact on that incident. Hmm. So question for you both is you both have seen the old school and you've seen this transition into generation, the new generation of fire, right? Of wildland firefighters. Do you think that overall that people are becoming jaded? Like with the pay, I mean, you even alluded to it yourself. I mean, the pay, the, the amount of pressure you're under, the ability to not really make those decisions that you know will matter. I mean, your boots on the ground, you were a hotshot superintendent for shit tons of years you know how to fight fire and a lot of other hotshot superintendents current day, they know how to fight fire and to have that operational independence removed from them. That's got to piss people off, man. That's got to piss people off that on top of the longer, hotter, drier seasons, the lack of pay benefits, all that shit. I mean, what have you guys seen? Cause you've seen it all. Well, maybe not all, but you've seen a pretty good majority of it. I think people are, Genuinely tired. It's hard to stay resilient with back-to-back seasons 
And when I speak to that, I speak to the, the line going firefighter. I speak to the incident management teams and I speak to the agencies and the agency administrators and the local fire management staffs that have to be duty officers that never get a break. It's continual and it, and it doesn't stop. The demands for um, required training. You mean um, the bullshit trainings the that bullshit you get held training. back from? Yeah, held back from fire assignments as well. Yeah, it, that and um, not getting adequate sleep. Mm, I think one. one thing COVID did was allowed crews in many ways to bring their own food. So maybe firefighter nutrition is a little bit better. Have you seen Wyoming Hotshots Camp Kitchen? Oh, yeah. That they trailer around? Holy shit. That oh, is yeah. legendary status. It, that is good stuff. It is. And, you know, that's one of the best things is when you can select your own food. And, and even save the agency money doing so. Absolutely. And I hope that I hope that that continues. But I do see people, like I said, I think I think a lot of people are just tired. The pay thing is demoralizing. And the fact that the infrastructure bill authorized the raises back in November and nothing has happened as we go into PL5 in the Southwest area right now, PL4, and nothing's happening. Yeah, rumor has it that we're going to jump to a PL3, I believe, here pretty I soon think so. nationally. And we made a promise to make it a little bit better. Back when we started, you know, GS3, 4, 5, these jobs were basically created for people going to school. Yeah. What you could do when you were working your way through college. Now we have families that are trying to live on a GS5 paycheck. You can't do it. You can't do it. And it was never designed for that. But regardless of how it was designed, it is a reality. There is a need for the job now more than ever. And people should be compensated, you know. Back in the day, you could lose a thousand acres and you know, maybe it wasn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. Now, if you lose an acre, is it a home? Is it a business, a livelihood, a life? Um, Lots we, of wooey. Yeah, we, we, we need the positions, regardless of how they were once designed. In somewhere back in history, today's 2022. And we have to step up and professionalize it and take care of people that want to do the job and encourage them to want to do the job. I mean, who wants to be gone for seven months out of the year away from their family, get tired, physically get beat up, mentally get beat up, and basically get paid 13 or $14 an hour? You know, speaking of the $13, $14 an hour thing, uh, someone went into my inbox on Instagram and they showed me their pay stub and they're still making $13, $14 an hour. It was like whatever the GS4 rate it was. It's like, I think it was like $14.95 an hour, but the minimum wage was supposed to be $15 an hour, no less. doesn't matter what GS level you are, three, four, it's $15 an hour is the minimum now. And even he, that person is getting fucked for a clerical error. It's like, come on, man, what, what, what is going on? So I understand it. I understand why people are getting pissed. 
yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I remember back 40 years ago when I first started, right. It was rare that anyone worked on the crew. One had a girlfriend, (laughs) let alone a wife, right? One, maybe out of 20. Girlfriends. Plural? Yeah, plural. Girlfriend. Well, like plenty of those, right? It's like that old joke is like, what do you call a uh, smoke jumper without a girlfriend? Right. Homeless. <laughs> right. Um, I just think back, none of us, none of us for years ever, we didn't see married, you know, married, married on the cruise as a seasonal until late 90s, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe. Everybody, we were all single, uh, maybe girlfriends, but you might have one that was married trying to raise a family on a seasonal salary. But they were Um, able to do it. um, You know, they made it, they made ends meet. Um, But by that, but, you know, at that point, you know, a couple of, couple of kids and that, um, I'm sure it had to be a struggle. I'm sure it had to be a struggle. Um. So, you know, I don't know how they're doing it today. I, I don't know how they're making it today. Um, you have seasonals. Now you hire one, they're almost all married nowadays. It was just, you just, it was not, it was not the culture back then. I mean, we were, we were single foot loose and going on the road 24 um, seven. So I don't know how they do it today. Got to be a struggle. Well, what about the fire behavior in general? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of people in like your position, 40 years of fire experience. And uh, they're saying like back when they're doing seasonal hotshot work, you know, like a huge fire was like a hundred thousand acres or less, like <laughs> 60 to a hundred thousand acres. I mean, is that BS or I mean, have you noticed- no. I'll tell you a large fire um, back then when I started was 5,000 acres. 5,000. Yeah. 5,000 acres. That's nothing. But we'd be all, oh man, we'd be, uh, we're on a 5,000 acre fire. That thing was huge. Right. Yeah. And then you'd be there for two weeks, three weeks, mopping up in the whole fire, right? 100% mop up. Oh, yeah. You're in the middle of the black, like you ain't never seen. (laughs) What the fuck? You're meeting the guys on the other side, right? We don't do that. And we got a little smarter, right? But um, there was, there was a time when that's a, you had a good week of firefighting and then the next two weeks, three weeks was mop up, right? And you mopped up everything. And that went on till about the middle eighties, a little later, we got, we got smarter. Um, When we first, when I first started, it was how wide you could cut and how far you could cut, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And you cut 10, 12, 15 foot wide and you went for however far you could get in that shift, right? That's how you, that's how you proved your crew worthiness, right? No matter what crew you were on, it was how wide you cut and how far you went. Yeah. And then around 1985, 86, we got a little smarter and said, why are we cutting like that? Because that's not, it's not going to, it's not stopping the fire, right? You're on the fire's edge. So we dropped our specs down to two foot, kind yeah. of two, four foot, six foot, maybe. And Depending that. on the fuel situation. And we became yeah. more, we got triple the distance, right? Only took us, 
that long to figure it out, right? <laughs> 160 years of fighting fire only took us that long to figure out why are we cutting 20 foot wide line and only going 200 yards in a shift, you know, versus cutting six foot line and going two miles, right? So, yeah. I, I, I've seen a lot of uh, things over the years, but the fire behavior then, 5,000 acres was a large fire. Uh, I think in 80, I think in 1985, um, I think we got our single largest fire. And I could be mistaken. It was 127,000 acres called the Wheeler Fire, right? It's outside of Ojai. Um, probably one of the largest fires in its day at the time. Mm -hmm. 127,000, 100, 100, 117 maybe, something like that. Um, and, and that we all went, man, that was a giant fire, right? Now, nowadays, like 21 day roll. Oh, there was no 21 day. No, you just, oh, till it was you over. went till it was over. Yeah. There was no 21 day. There was nothing then. Um, so now, you know, I've seen it progress over the years to where right now, um, you jump off the crew trucks or you jump out of your engine or whatever, you're in immediate extreme fire behavior, right? So I've seen it go from docile to where we're at today, right? Yeah. Every fire shitting and getting basically. Every fire shitting and getting, you know, you're, a normal fire isn't, there's no more normal fires, right? You know, we all train and teach, you know, mop up and patrol and this is how you do it. But we need to be teaching extreme fire behavior. So when you step off the truck, the kids know, Hey, we're getting up. We're stepping off the truck here. Here, here's the normal, right? It's extreme fire behavior. Let's be heads up. It's so, not like one of those things where you get off the truck and it's like, all right, get your pass, correct. you know, all right, drag your feet. All right, let's go punch in this line, drag our feet, whatever. Yeah. Now it's like you step off that truck and it seems like your life is in immediate fucking danger. Correct. It, it would be, you know, in, in the older days, it'd be, um, if you, if you were not initial attack in that first operational period, um, that the 10 AM policy, right. We yeah. want to put it out by 10 AM. Worst fucking policy ever. Correct. Probably got put it out by probably reasoning why we're here today. But again, um, you show up, you drive, you know, 12 hours to go to the fire that you got ordered for and you get there and it's all you do is mop up. That's how it was. In the, in the eighties, then in the you know nineties, two thousands, that all whenever that all went away is it is we got drought. We have I won't call it climate change, but something's going on, right? So we got drought. We got the fuels issue. We got the the prescribed fire issue. We got how how do we manage the landscape, right? Mm -hmm. So again, um, that that fire extreme fire behavior increase over the years. Um, it's to a point now where um, you got to train and teach and teach the um, new folks that you're, you're stepping off the truck into something that's, you know, you need to watch out for and you need to make sure everybody's got each other's back. So. So that training and camaraderie and making sure that we have each other's backs has never been more important than it is today. Correct. More so now than ever and with the fire behavior we got. Yeah. I mean, 
that's another thing too, is like, what do you think about the whole mental health component of that? I mean, just constantly being in those situations and having to do more with less. I mean, that's gotta take a burden on people. I mean, I know it started to take a burden on me. It's one of the reasons why I got out of fire. I've seen a lot lately about the whole do more with less thing and people are over it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easier to go do something else than do more with less. Do more with less is a safety issue. Oh, 100%. When it comes right down to it. 100%. Just like you were saying too, with the, the lack of training and like you have, you're, you're basically putting band-aids on arterial wounds when it comes to experience. And like people don't have those slides really developed because all of your leadership's fucking off to better jobs. And it's hard to recruit leadership. It is. Almost everywhere there's an acting or an acting or an acting because nobody's ever in their real job. Yeah. It's just like detailers or Detail. whatever. <laughs> Yeah. And, but to ask somebody to do more with less, I think we got past that about 20 years ago. And when you don't know what to say, or you don't know what to do, it's easy to just fall back and say, well, I guess we have to do more with less. Well, it's not acceptable anymore. It's not, especially with the intensity. I mean, look at Stephen Prine, the Pyrocene era. I Yeah. I believe in that shit. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. You've seen it firsthand. You've seen it firsthand. It's three people in the same fucking room. They're saying the same exact thing. You've got, both of you have way more experience on the ground than I knew, but I mean, shit, I only did it for 11 years and I just got out of it. But I mean, even going back to what you're saying about stepping off that truck and the game has changed and that, that stressor knowing that you're on a fire that could potentially be shit and getting well it is going to be shit and getting but your yeah. life is actually in peril could be in peril could be yeah there's a higher likelihood of it being in peril the moment you step off that truck these days i mean that's got to play a toll on your mental health as well well when you know that you could go to work and die somebody that you work with could die and they do or that you could be seriously injured i think in some cases we're doing a better job of preparing people for adversity but we could do a whole lot better Mm -hmm. Um, one of the things that we've done in my LLC critical incident concepts mm -hmm. is we've written a course called comprehensive fitness and we teach all the things that we never talked about when I started out and we try to make it real about how life is today and share with people that elephant um, room conversation. Yeah. And then just the journey through a fire career from day one, where this is what you're going to do forever until 25 years in, you know, six months, three weeks and two days, I'm getting the fuck out of here. What changed? What drove that? Well, you mentioned it earlier. You said that the agencies are being reactive when someone either commits suicide or passes away on a fire. Everything's reactionary. It's like, oh, something happened. Let's bring the cavalry. Why the fuck aren't we being proactive about it? That's a big thing. I think, I, I mean, there's a handful yeah. of people like yourself that are being right. proactive about and, it. And, and that's really where it is, is yes, we need to be prepared to handle a line of duty death and have pre-incident plans in place and understand the processes. But people tend to cope better after a critical incident based on other critical incidents where they used positive coping skills and learned life and had more of a positive outcome 
so that they build resistance and, and resilience. And we need to have those conversations. I think we're getting better uh, with it, but we still have a long ways to go. There's a lot of conversations that we need to have up front just about how to invest your thrift savings. Nobody ever, nobody ever told me that. When I, got a, when I got a permanent job, the only thing I knew was I didn't have to apply for my job every year. And then I thought, I thought that, you know, retirement was so far down the road, I didn't even care. Well, I wish somebody would have told me about that because things would look a whole lot different in my world. You know, had I known that we had these benefits, explanations about fire retirement, breaks in service, how to manage those things. That three day thing. Yeah, we're not we're not really up front. And, you know, there's good information um, about how to make your life a better place once you become a federal employee. Access to mental health care. There's a big thing now, you know, reach out, ask for help. Well, trying to reach out to who? Yeah. That can become daunting. Who do I call? How do I know they'll understand me? How do I know I can even trust them? Yeah, you're just going to call a Joe Blow yeah. clinician and they're going to be like, I don't know. like. Well, you, you might something that get a does. substance abuse counselor when yeah. really you need a trauma therapist. And so we're proactive about getting people to say, okay, I'm going to reach out. I need help. But then... How do I do that? Where do I go? And what that becomes then is we have a tendency to have people ask for help after symptoms emerge rather than do things for people to address things that they can cope, early coping skills Mm -hmm. before symptoms do emerge. And then they have to seek that higher level of care. And I think that's where the best investment is. Just getting ahead of the curve. Yeah. Yeah. And then having, you know, facilitating access to mental health care. That's when, you know, a couple of years ago, we decided to start FireMind. And that's where we do referrals for wildland fire personnel or their families to culturally competent mental health professionals that we have personally vetted. We know they're credible. They understand the culture. And we are in a position to make that connection through the pandemic. Telemed is a wonderful tool. Oh yeah. Um, you don't Silver have to whining about COVID. <laughs> sure, sure. You don't have to worry that if you're in a small town when there's no access to anybody, you can talk to one of the best clinicians in the country right from your own home or from your phone. And we are in a position in some cases, if there's a financial issue, if there's a seasonal things are going on, that we will assist and pay for some of those costs. Um, we haven't done a lot with FireMind. Um, it's been hard to get some traction to get it going. Starting we, a nonprofit is a pain in the ass. We switched it from a nonprofit because of those reasons, but we're I mean, also not looking to make a profit. So right now, it's just a service through my LLC that we offer because we think it's important. Oh, yeah. It needs to exist. Yeah, for sure. I mean, EAP right now. I mean, it's, it's been there. They have the new uh, program and I forget what it's called, but they just switched over to a new contracting and it's a little bit better. The forest service did switch to aspire aspire. That's what it is, which is the same EAP provider that the department of interior uses. 
So that cleans it up in that. It's now uniform. It's now uniform. It used to be very confusing. Mm -hmm. EAP, Aspire, they do have some good informational things on their website um, that I think is very good. The other thing that Aspire offers is telemedicine so that you can talk to somebody. I don't have any experience with them. I haven't in several years. I hear that there's some delays, but just the fact that they offer the telemed, um, they don't have to worry about licensing across state boundaries. If you're in Florida and talking to somebody in Oregon, is it a state licensing thing? Um, they've gotten around that and it is a service. So, you know, I think in some cases for people, it's probably a good option, especially if it's a financial substance abuse, maybe domestic problems. You know, it's a service that's offered that's out there. It is confidential and it is free. And that's the thing too, is like just getting ahead of the curve and maybe even like if you're to go and sign up for this and just what you're offered, was it six per year, six visits? You know, I'm like, I don't work with them that carefully, but I do believe it's like six and you can be, you could be, you know, authorized more. And I think it, at least it's a resource. Yeah. Well, what I'm trying to say is I wonder if you're able to get ahead of the curve, like something doesn't happen to have to have to happen before you make that connection with a clinician, but if you space those six visits out over the course of a, a season, a fire season, shit, you're getting ahead of the curve. You're already establishing care and being preventative about it. I mean, fuck, I have a therapist and my life's not too bad. I mean, yeah, I got some challenges, but that's just like nothing catastrophic or anything like that. But fuck, I even have a therapist. Well, I think you're exactly right. And it's just maintenance. Yeah, that's all it is. Yeah, it's self-care and it's maintenance. I know people that do use EAP for just maintenance. Mm -hmm. So that if there's something on the horizon, I mean, it's preventative. You've already established care. Yeah, with you've already clinician. got care. Yeah. I have a clinician that I see through telemed every three months. Um, and more than anything, it's maintenance. It's needed. I mean, I, what do you think, Ron? I mean, you came up through the old school. I mean, what did you guys do? Like before, like the implementation of EAP and all that stuff. I mean. So I think back then, uh, it, it, you know, we, we, the hotshot community back then, and I'll just say California hotshots, uh, we're kind of the drivers in one um, crew cohesion beginning the beginning uh, the beginning of what mental health care was and how to do it right um, and I think a peer support I think is uh, superintendents and incidents that happen. Um, you know, working with Quantico, um, the Marine Corps, Quantico University of Leadership, um, working with them in the uh, early 90s, uh, I think brought us to that point of just scratching the surface of what is mental health care, right? Or how do we support each other, right? As one, um, co-workers, peers, uh, superintendent to superintendent, captain to captains, squaddies to squaddies. Um, I think, I think um, with all the leadership training we started, drove us down that avenue overall across um, all agencies. 
on on the beginning of what self care really was, and we didn't even know what we what it was. We didn't know what it was. Yeah. We just knew we had to do something, right? And and what's the right thing to do? It's do what's right, right? And uh, you have a uh, another hotshot crew have an incident, right? And it, it's it's taking care of each other, right? And we started doing. Only took us a hundred years, probably a firefighting, to figure that out, right? And, and that was probably our first. I feel our first steps to where um, the critical incident stress programs gotten to, to where the telemeds gotten to, to mental health, firefighter mental health, with all the studies. Um, it, I, I think, I think um, we just scratched the surface then, right? And, and that was in the 90s. In the 90s, we, it took us that long to figure it out. Um, I, I think that you did figure it out though, through a lot of the esprit de corps and the taking care of one another, when we started the critical incident stress or the peer support program in the Great Basin, it, late 90s, early 2000s, and started doing classes and we were looking for leadership and mentor mentoring for our peer supporters. Almost every class that we had filled with California hotshot superintendents And to this day, most of the critical incident peer support group leaders that we use are California hotshot superintendents. Hmm. I mean, there was, um, there was a lot of, a lot of protective factors built into their programs, um, looking out for each other, understanding when people were in distress and not minimizing it or um, putting a stigma on it. When we first started having our very own SISM teams, our peer support group leaders, when we had some of the more hardcore, and I always felt like some many of the California shot superintendents and others were some of the most cynical people I've ever worked with. That's a coping mechanism. Which is okay. <laughs> cynical Cynicism keeps us alive when it doesn't go too far. True. Um, you know, there's, we do a lot of work in one of our courses about cynicism, but when these cynical guys showed up and gave it and, and gals and gave us their stamp of approval and still stand by us to this day, that's, that's, that's speak, that speaks volumes. Yeah. And, you know, um, I think back to, uh, um, who fostered that at that time, right? It was our hotshot superintendents that were, um, 10, 15 years senior to me. And I was a new superintendent. And for them, I worked for, I worked for and around some legendary good Achat superintendents. You mentioned you know? Stan Stewart earlier. Stan Stewart. Um, we were, we were um, equals actually. And um, actually I became a superintendent before Stan. Um, but me and Stan worked together on the Los Prietos shot, Los Prietos hot shots, which now are the Los Padres hot shots. Um, but you know, looking at the Mark Lenanes, the Charlie Caldwells, working with the Greg Overackers, Bob Bennett's, um, Ron Reagan's, Ron Smith's, um, you know, Bill Malumbi, all of them had senior. I was probably I'm probably the youngest 
of the oldest generation. So uh, I, I became a superintendent at, I think, about 30 years old. There was no superintendent at 30 at that time. They were all 50, 55. Um, they, I was the youngest superintendent probably of that oldest generation. Um, and they're the ones that fostered the self-care. Let's, let's um, take care of each other. Um, you know, a, a crew would have an issue. It, it was not uncommon for another superintendent to drive eight hours to be on the doorstep of another superintendent that had an incident and said, Hey, how can I help? What do you, you know, how can I support you? What do you, you know, we're here for you. Right. So I think back to, uh, incident I had in 2008, um, my son committed suicide and within six, six hours I had four superintendents on my doorstep. Um, and we didn't do that then. Um, but that's where we learned, I think, how to, what to do, what's right. And to do the peer support, do, do take care of each other. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it just took us forever to figure it out, um, from the old school. And, you know, those old, the, the older superintendents are what really fostered that and pushed that. Right. So then the newer, the newer generation picked up on it and took it forward. Um, and not all hot shots, they all, all the fire community in a whole, in a whole took it on. Um, and it's just gotten to where it's at today and, and the importance of the mental health and, and taking care of yourself, your family, um, before the job, right? So it's not the job comes first. So not anymore. Used to be that way. That was it. You, you do or died by serving the job, right? Yeah. That's like the true, true old school. True, true old school. You know, it didn't matter. Um. Your wife could be pregnant, right? You're still going to that fire out the door. Um, maybe not so. It's such a good thing, right? It only took us hundred years to figure it out. So it's a long ass time, man. But I mean, it's just like <laughs> the infinite, infinitely large gears of bureaucracy turning. I mean, yeah, yeah. that you're scattered to all across the United States too. I mean, to actually get all of you on all of the old soups like on the same page and to implement true change as far as taking care of yourselves, because we all know that if you're not right up here, you're ineffective as a crew and you're a safety hazard, not to only yourself, but to everyone around you. Operationally, you're ineffective. Operationally, you're ineffective. Yeah. Yep. You can cut line from here, point A to point B, and that's about it. Yeah. You know. Which is kind of funny because I always say like, oh yeah, I always have this like saying, and you've heard it even on our first podcast that we've done together. It's like that old school mentality needs to fucking go out to pasture and die. <laughs> but come to find out with two <laughs> legendary figures in the same room here, uh, that old school mentality is the very fucking reason that we have the changes that we're seeing today and that mental health awakening. So. That's, that's speaking volumes, man. There's a lot of things about that culture that bring good today. And it was always about caring. It was about the human factor. 
Yeah. Um, people were treated with respect for the most part. Yeah, we called it human factors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> human factors. Little did we know we were just scratching the surface, right? Oh, well, yeah. at least we didn't refer to ourselves as human capital. Before I left BLM, we were referred to as human capital. And it was, you know what? I think it's time to retire. If human I'm human capital. capital yeah. If that's, if, if, if that's what I am to the workforce, it's maybe time to find another set of headaches. Does that imply that you have a dollar amount fixed to you? If you have a service tag and a barcode, I mean, <laughs> shit, what do you do when it's broken? You just put it in the fucking cash with a pink piece of flagging that says broken on it. <laughs> I don't know. That's, yeah. that's bullshit, man. Uh, yeah. yeah. That needs to go away. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah, man. So you guys lived through some of arguably the biggest tragedy fires that every firefighter knows, right? South Canyon, Esperanza, all of that stuff, right? Everything. What was, what was the changes that you see is like, cause I have a, a, the utmost respect for the tens and 18s cause those tens and 18s are literally written in blood, right? As far as the mental health component from those, you guys saw some shit and you didn't have these, these things like EAP and you just had just like each other to rely on. I mean, what was it like that then? I think at least from my experience with South Canyon, it wasn't so much the focus on mental health as it was a change in tactics and strategies and policy and safety, which was long overdue. Mm -hmm. And I believe that we made some great progress in that aspect. Ron was intimately involved with Esperanza um, from the human part of it. Um, he has a pretty amazing story about that and what they learned about taking care of others. She's putting me on the spot. <laughs> Buckle up, pop quiz, hot shot. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think about that and I think about the question, right? And I think about um, what are the 10s and 18s? It, it was 10s and 13s when I started. 18s came from South Canyon. Yeah. So we added some more. Um, and, and how did we cope with that, right? How did I cope with that? I, I saw, I've seen a lot of stuff, right? A lot of, a lot of like you're saying, a lot of the, tragedy fires, right? Yeah. The ones that everybody knows. So it makes you learn it. It makes you look at what, what, what you've learned makes you look at why we have those tens, 18s, downhill line construction, um, the common denominators, what do they really mean? Right. Make, it made me look as a hotshot superintendent, well, just as a firefighter in general, made me look at those and really want to understand what they meant um, and and what the ramifications are by breaking one of them or not following them. And I don't care if the fire's out, it's cold, it's rainy, it's snowy. You do the same thing every time. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's muscle memory. It's response, right? It's muscle response, memory response, muscle response. You don't take a shortcut. And that all that does is reinforce in my operational tactics library to never commit the cardinal sin, right? Don't do it. You do it once, you trick yourself. 
Or and you, you trick yourself into doing it every time. Yeah. Right. That's a complacency factor. Doesn't matter. I don't care if the crew got, if the crew goes, well, what are we doing this? It's snowing. I don't care. This is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. That's what way we do it. Right. Same thing, same place, same time, every time. Doesn't matter. And it just reinforces good. You're going to come home at night. Yeah. With no shortcuts, you know, downhill line construction, there's guidelines there. Um, understand what they are and understand the ramifications of not doing it. That's one operation you won't come home from best toolbox in the tool and best tool in the toolbox, downhill line construction, awesome tool, but it's something you won't come home from if you don't implement it. Right. Yeah. And understand what can happen. Right. So it, it just reinforced. That's how we dealt with it. We just reinforced us on our tactics and are we doing the right thing? It made me think, are, am I doing the right thing? Am I every time? Am I doing the right thing? Am I making the right sound decision? Am I making good decisions? And we just put, you push that down to the crew too. This, this is in, and teach mentor lead and guide them to make good decisions that will take them through their career. Right. And then um, that's how we back then, I think dealt with the tragedies, right? There was no touchy feely. Oh, Hey, how you decision? There was none of that. Right? it just reinforced good tactics and make sure you're, you're on your a game. So a little bit more of like a, uh, not necessarily like a, not necessarily cold or anything like that, because whenever, whenever a wildland firefighter dies in the line of duty, everybody feels that. Yeah. hundred percent. doesn't matter if you don't know him. It doesn't matter. If you did, was your best friend, you're going to feel it just the same. Correct. Uh, but the lessons learned out of those tragedy fires, that's what you took away from it. And that's what you guys focused on back then. Or? That's what, that's what I focused. That's what my, you, me personally, Yeah, you Ron, I can tell me Ron. Yes. Yeah. That's what I focused on. What, what, what to learn out of that. Right. Mm-hmm. And reinforce that you are using good tactics and you are using good decisions and you're choosing the right opportunities, right? When, 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 and is it right? And like I said, it's, it's, um, if you can understand the fire behavior and make those decisions, um, and your crew is tight, cohesive, um, and, and there's times, I mean, I look back and how we operated as a crew, right? And, and we would make each, I would make each my captains too. I had some outstanding captains in my career um, as a superintendent that worked for me at, uh, on the Fulton Hotshots. And we would ask each crew member to stand up and tell us, what does each one of those 10s, 18s, downhill, common denominators, um, urban interface watchouts, what do they mean to you? Like you personally. You personally. So the rest of the crew could hear it. and. Everybody heard everybody of what that meant to each one of them. So when we got into a firefight, they communicated on the radio. They all knew what each other was talking about and knew what they were saying. So there was no questions asked. It's like a training exercise that we used to do. It's like, uh, all right, I want you to run me through starting the pump from cold start, no prime, anything like that. But I want you to do it over the radio. Tell me how to do this. Right. 
Same kind of concept. Same kind of thing. And that way everybody knows how each other thinks. Yeah. And each other communicates. So when they say, no, this fire's running and it's going, because you've heard it before out there. Oh, it's running. And you go over there and you're all, what, what are you talking about? Right. Oh yeah. But it's moving. Right. And, it, and it's just everybody's perception. Right. But the crew needs everybody's perception. Everybody's how they think. Right. That's, that's how you get a well fine oiled machine. As a cohesion part. It's a cohesion part. Once you got that, you're solid. So how did you guys like the, the telltale signs of like mental health stuff, right? Like how did you guys recognize when someone was struggling, like your crew or how did you guys, how did you guys identify that? When they wake up in the middle of the night, dreaming they're cutting line <laughs> and they're screaming at the top of their lungs, sleep and sleep, sleep talking, cutting line. I've done it. Right. Yeah. And you know, they're, ta- they're just taxed. They're maxed. Maxed out. That's it. Take a break. So the next day you go, Hey, let's take a break. Hey, why don't you go be a lookout here today? Right. Yeah. That's how we dealt with it, right? Hey, telltale signs, right? Tempers get short. Oh yeah, snap temper. Attitudes get short, right? So mm-hmm. you, you, we picked and choose, right? You knew, you just know, and you. Well, shit, you're practically living with each other for yeah. six months out of the and year. And you so. might give them a break from a day, right? Hey, go do this for the day. Hey, go there down here. Hey, take your fishing pole with you when you go run, when you go run the pump down there, right? That kind of thing. That's how we did it. Yeah. That's how we did it. You know, I, there was no turnkey call, call for, you know, telemed. There was no such thing. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of how we did it. We just kind of, you self monitor. Right. Um, but today now we have many opportunities to fix that or help with that. I don't know that it needs fixed because we're all demented in one way or another. <laughs> we attract a very specific crowd of people. <laughs> yeah, we do. So I don't know if fixing is the right word, but um, I don't think nothing's broken. I just think that we just uh, there's many opportunities, yeah. but that's that's kind of how we did it back then. You just kind of watch. You know, that was a big one. All of a sudden, you hear when somebody, you know, three, four, five sleeping bags over, going, you know, hey, watch out for that snag, and they're, they're dead asleep. Yeah. Right. So they, and then you wake up and you go, shit, I felt like I've been cutting line all night. <laughs> right. Girl, did I even get a, like I dreamt all night I was cutting line and dropping trees and you're all, did I even go to bed? Right. You're like, yeah, they should put in for a 24 hour pay. <laughs> it, was, it was a line spike, right? Yeah. yeah. Keep the clock rolling. <laughs> so that's kind of the things that kind of we did at the, during that time, you know, we're, you know, in those days when we didn't have the tools, yeah, you know, or the outlets like telemed or, or, uh, um, fire mine support or, you know, anything the wildland firefighter foundation has to offer, you know, we didn't have that. Yeah. We didn't have that. So you just kind of monitored self monitor within the crew and did, did things like that. Just did the best you could. Yeah. Go down and, Hey, go run the pump today. Take your fishing pole, whatever. You know, you can tell when they're getting one wound tight. So question for both of you. I mean, do you think that like, since we have this availability of tools and FireMind and folks like the wildland firefighter foundation and next rug, and you, you, we got a lot of resources out there. I think that we're too proud of a culture still to actually go out and utilize these things. I mean, 
you guys didn't really have the option back then, but nowadays you have a ton of things out there, but do you think people are still kind of reluctant to actually like go out and seek those things? I I think so. And I don't know that it's a matter of pride Mm -hmm. as much as it's a matter of fear. You still have to gain trust with our crews. Yeah. Um, We don't want to be labeled as having a mental health disorder and maybe not get that promotion or maybe not get the trust of our supervisor. People are afraid they might lose their job. Kind of feeling like that weak link or like something's broken or wrong with them. That defective equipment tag that I was talking about. And I don't think that there's, you know, there's this, well, you know, taking care of our own. We don't always see that. We see people who are hurt and they rely on a GoFundMe page because OWCP can't get it together. That's a tragedy. To take care of them. That's it's it's so wrong. And it's so hard to prove physical injury. Think about what people go through trying to prove a psychological injury. And sometimes a psychological injury comes after a physical injury and manifests itself based on how they're treated. Yeah. And there's a reluctance because we want to be trusted. We want to be part of that crew. We want to be part of that cohesiveness. And am I going to lose my job? Am I maybe somebody that's struggling with a post-traumatic related illness and they could prevent me from fighting fires and make me go work in the mailroom? Yeah. There's, there's a, there's a, there's very much a lack of trust of what will happen if you come forward and say, Hey, I need help. And it's still reach, you know, ask for help. You also don't have to advertise it. No, um, you can be discreet about it if you want yeah. to. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, through critical incident concepts, nobody's ever going to know. Um, I think, uh, I think, I think where we're at today, at least from my side and the operational side um, that I'm still involved in, I, I, I think, I think the awareness is there. And I think the openness is there more so than ever. Yeah. Um, down to the firefighter level. Um, but again, um, I think I, I, I see, I, I don't think I see it. Um, they're more willing to accept, um, the offer and the, um, advice and the opportunity, um, for what's out there. Um, Versus 10, 15 years ago that they would have been, no, I'm good. Yeah. No, I'm good. No, I'm good. Right. Um, I think, I think they're more open now. And, and I hope that um, all the education on the mental health part um, is coming forward. Right. And it's becoming more uh, in the uh, front. Yeah. It's more accepted. It's more accepted. Um, I do see it is more accepted. So, um, and willing to, um, participate in something, um, whether it's telemed, whether it's, uh, just referrals or, um, talking to somebody. I think, I think it's more accepting nowadays. Yeah. 
Well, and there's a lot of things that you can do that are preventative. Um, you know, I know the term mindfulness might sound kind of cliche, but it's very powerful. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And, and it's something that you can practice anywhere you are. It's like the tactical breathing we were talking about on episode one. On episode one and tactical right. breathing has, has evolved. Tactical breathing is, is so powerful. And, it and it's so be, simple too. And it's so simple. And it's proven to lower your blood pressure, your heart rate, just good sleep hygiene. You know, if you get an opportunity to, you know, work in Spike, that is an opportunity for good sleep. Spike, there ain't no camp like Spike Camp. Exactly. But also in the day of cell phones, they've, studies have shown that the blue light or the lights that come off a cell phone um, be prior to going to sleep, no different than a TV, has an impact on the brain that can prevent falling asleep and staying asleep. And so part of good sleep hygiene involves no exposure to a cell phone or to, you know, TV prior to going to bed. Um, there's a lot of information out there on good sleep, sleep hygiene. Um, there's a professor, I believe he's at the University of Idaho or Montana, um, Randy he, Brooks. Yeah. Randy Brooks did yeah. the study with hot shots. I believe his son's a hot shot. Yeah. And wired he's him up with, jumper, yeah, yeah. wired him up with, you know, different things and shown, you know, just the impacts of lack of sleep, um, especially over the long term, and what it does to our physical and mental health. So even without having to talk to somebody or say, I, you know, I, I, I need help. I need to do this. Uh, spending some time with some mindfulness. Practicing gratitude um, is powerful. And I know, again, it sounds cliche. Especially when we're so cynical. Yeah. (laughs) Cynicism can be powerful. And like I said, you know, just finding, you know, breathing that works for you. Yeah. um, To just, you know, help yourself along the way. And that's a big thing, too, is like the sleep. I I noticed that it's like this weird snowball effect. And it kind of just builds and builds and builds because the lack of sleep affects your operational capacity, your operational capacity. If it's too great, that's affecting your mental health. And the sleep is the rem- one of the remedies to your mental health. But you have to work so much that you can't get any sleep. And then it's just like this fucking snowball. Yeah. And, and so it's literally killing us. If you can at least what little sleep you and do diet get. Too. Yeah. What little sleep you do get, if you can at least make it quality sleep. Other studies have shown that lack of sleep can contribute to um, I'm sorry, Parkinson's disease. Really? Yes. No shit. And on the flip side, too much sleep can contribute to Parkinson's. You're about to spit your beer out. Yeah. <laughs> I just wondered if she was going to get Parkinson's. I was almost to get Parkinson's because of too much sleep. <laughs> Shit, I wish I had that luxury right now. <laughs> not with two kids, you don't. Nope. No, yeah, poor that's wife. not going to happen. Yeah. Shit, my poor wife, Jen, she's, uh, yeah, she's definitely bearing the burden of this. Yeah. But the, yeah, you got about 20 years to go before you get good sleep. Right. <laughs> Maybe I was just telling me to get a job at like 16. Like, why aren't you paying bills yet? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> or just go get a, on a team. You you slept really great when you were on a team. Yeah. You left the crew, right? I was yeah. To say, yeah, laugh it up over there, Chuckles. I know you haven't seen a lot of sleep in your lifetime. <laughs> yeah, no. You still I can't sleep. No. I'm oh. up early. No. This becomes routine after a while. Yeah. Yeah. But like this whole like mental health thing is like, I mean, so take it like the end of the year and that battle camaraderie, battle camaraderie. You mentioned uh, on our first episode, you mentioned folks coming back from World War II and how they're a lot better off because they had their own peer support because they didn't just like fly for 24 hours from like Afghanistan nowadays, right? They took a ship and this voyage back from Europe, the European theater or the Pacific theater all the way back to America. And that took weeks. I mean, they had to basically two weeks of peer support to just hash shit out, talk about things, talk about the hard shit. Like how do we, how do we mitigate that? Because our lives are so fast paced and it's from one fire to another, to another, to another for six to eight months out of the year. And then you have three months off, you know, four months off to, get your shit together and be a full-time, I don't know, husband, father, friend, go relate to your family. You haven't seen in six to eight months. It's like, we don't have those opportunities like those soldiers of the past in World War II to get that shit off their chest before they got home. So how do we remedy this? It comes I mean, to, I'm not comparing, hold on, right. preface this with like, I'm not trying to compare that wildland firefighters anywhere in relation to World War II and fighting literal fucking Nazis. Let's be clear about that. But the still, the mental health component is still relatable. It still comes down to your family first. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about this on the first episode. There's no Hall of Fame. Your legacy is not this job. It's not wildland fire, your it's legacy. Not your identity either. No. And when it defines your identity, which it does, I mean, it's going to define your identity to a point. Oh, yeah. But when it completely defines your identity and then you lose that sense of belonging, that's where we tend to see depression, suicide, substance abuse. But if you can adopt a routine of good self care, identify ahead of time what days off might look like as hard as that might be Mm -hmm. and, you know, recognize the things that you can do so that you feel better. And again, that comes down to sleep. It comes down to good nutrition, which, you know, (laughs) I, I hope that continues with, you know, the Wyoming hot shots. Yeah. Uncrustables are not a food group. (laughs) No, they're not a food group at all. And, um, finding things that, 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 you know, work for you in, in, in times of adversity and finding personal things that help you build resistance and resilience. There's a lot of great information out there um, to read about, to instill some mental toughness. And nobody's going to do it for you. I wouldn't rely on the agency to do it. You'd be holding your breath for a long time if you expect them to fix anything. Yeah, yeah. That's any government but, but agency, to find, apparently. You know, what works for you, even if it means finding a different career path. And I think that's an unfortunate thing that uh, a lot of people right now, specifically, are th- this time frame right now, I've seen so much. 
I guess, turnover and people looking for new jobs and saying, this is my last year in fire, which we all know how that conversation usually goes, but this time it's pretty serious. Like usually like in the past, like, Oh, this is my last fucking year in fire. You know, five years later, they're still there. Five years later, they're still there. Right. We've all heard that mop up conversation and like, this is my last year in fire guys. We've all heard it. Right. This year it's something different. There people are serious about it and I, I get it. But that's ultimately up to you. I mean, yeah, you can sit and wait and see what happens with infrastructure, with grassroots, with Tim's Act and all this other stuff. But I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, really think about what this job is, what it means to you and if it's really worth it. And no matter what, have a plan. A hundred percent. You know, separation from service is something that a lot of people struggle with when they 57 out. I was only 11 years in and I was wildly fucking unprepared for it. Yeah. (laughs) And separation from service, as you well know, it can happen at any time from an injury, Mm -hmm. from an illness, due to family, due to disciplinary reasons or mandatory. Um, You know, you can separate from service. And if. Or even reprisal. Yeah. And if this is, and if this is your identity, um, always have another plan. When I got out, I had a plan. I knew I didn't know about my BIA contract. That was just, you know, a, in addition to, you know, a great retirement. But I knew I was going to start a company. I knew I was going to get a master's degree. And I knew that it was going to be the most liberating time of my life. And I knew that three years later, most people wouldn't even know who I am. And I was good with that. I didn't take it personally. I'm fine with that. But I had a plan and that's what facilitated it. So I, it's, I always encourage people, have a plan and have things that you've got going outside the job. Whatever it is, whether it's your family, it's a hobby, you know, invest in that. Um, it's hard to do when you're seven to eight months on the road, fighting fire back to back after about roll eight. You don't even know which end is up. Oh, yeah. You're um, just used to time traveling in the back of the yeah, buggy, right? Exactly. Exactly. Oh, wake up. What fucking state am I in? <laughs> but it comes down to an individual decision on, on self and, and family care. When we first started working with our clinicians in SISM and we told them the schedules we kept, like, you know, seven to eight, nine, ten roles, you know, the 21-day thing. That rule came late in my career is the fact that, you know, it's reasonable to get on the road at six in the morning. No big deal. Five. Yeah. Shut it down around twenty three hundred. That's a that's a reasonable day, right? That's normalized to us. But I mean, shit, when you're I pulling mean, an some, 18 hour day. Mental health professionals we started working with when we expected that schedule out of them. <laughs> they probably told you you're fucking smoking crack. <laughs> yeah, they did. <laughs> in exactly those same words. And they're like, who does that? Who in their right mind does that? So then when we started talking about, well, but then we, we work 16s, but really we work 24s, but sometimes we show 16s, but we have to show a lunch break and we. Oh yeah. You, you know, want finance crawling up your ass. Yeah, exactly. So when we told them all that, they're like, well, you're even crazier than we thought you were. <laughs> Who does that? <laughs> the military doesn't do it. Yeah. The military doesn't even do it. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, no. And structure fire. 
they, they don't do that. I mean, they're yeah. dangerous jobs. I'm not minimizing it at all, but you know, the design of our system, it's so flawed. It's subject to question just the sanity of that. Okay. So when we talk to, when we talk about mental health and wildland fire, let's look at our structure. Let's look at our expectations of the human mind and body. Oh yeah. You're constantly pushing yourself to limits. Yeah. And, yeah. They put that in line with reality and see how many hours a day you're going to get out of it. But at the same time, you need the overtime to pay your bills. Exactly. But after a while, you're even operationally, like just from an, like a work output perspective, you're getting diminishing returns. I mean, Especially you hit, with the sleep. Oh yeah. You, I mean, you, what, when do you notice like a, a dramatic change in output? Probably what day five, eight. Yeah. Right in there somewhere. Day 10. Day 10. And people day are just 10. over it. Yeah. But the thing is, that's crazy. And like, we were talking a lot about the negatives about this job, but fuck, look at the positives, man. I wouldn't have changed anything I did. I loved it. I'd miss it. But. Correct. I, I understand what I have to do to make ends meet one and two. I, I'm, I'm happier right now. That's just me though. Yeah. But do I miss fire? Absolutely. See I like going home and sleeping in my bed and seeing my kids every day. Correct. I do. And that's hard, man. And I. Well, you know, once, once this is what I always say. Once you uh, choose to miss a birthday or a family event, it gets easier the second time and it gets easier the third time. Then by the fourth time, you don't even think about it. Nope. Not going. Can't make it. Can't make it. I got to go to fire. But if if there's anything to say there, don't, don't miss those opportunities to go to a birthday, to go to a family event. Cause the minute you pass one and you say, I'm not going, the next one gets easier to say, I'm not going and easier and easier to where it becomes a normal for you. And you miss your kids growing up, you miss family events, you miss everything because we sold our soul to the agency, right? Um, that would be my take home messages. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Sit, go to the birthday, go to the event. Every fire goes out. Eventually. Yes, it does. It and I know out. I'm just as guilty. I'm just, I'm super guilty about that. Not going to birthdays or weddings or a family event just because I wanted to go make that overtime. Yep. What was it really worth, man? I just, for me, I mean, I can't get that time back. Time's my most, yeah, time's my most valuable resource. Yeah. You could waste my money or you could waste whatever, like material shit. I can always make more money and get new shit. It doesn't matter. Time is something you'll never get back. You can't get that back. But I will say though, that the times that I did have in fire, I wouldn't trade for the world because they were the times of my life and I fucking loved it. And been, I guarantee you, everybody out there, else out there loved it. You loved it. Yeah. You loved it. Being able to balance the two, right? Yeah. And I get it as a crewman, you know, it's, we're better now, but it, it, when I started, you would never dare ask for a day off, right? You didn't do that. Yeah. There was no way you didn't do that. You didn't ask for a day off because then you were like weak or actually you weren't weak. You're all, they're going to do something. I'm not going to be there. Right? Yeah. I want to be there. I want to be there. But once you commit that deadly sin and go, uh, I'm not going to go to the birthday party or the wedding or the family function. It gets easier 
every time to pass off, right? 100% because it became easier and easier and Go easier. Go up, can't make it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that. And then Anybody that's listening, don't do that. <laughs> that's words of advice right there. That's that's huge it words is. of advice. It is. I mean, for fuck's sake, you're a type, former type one IC. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> type two IC. Former. And, you know, I was thinking about that with, um, with we're, we're always focusing in on the uh, operational folks, right? But then you think of the team, command and general staff, and just team, team members or single resource people, mm-hmm. you know, unit leaders down to uh, all the support personnel, you know, a lot of the times they're overlooked. They don't get they, they don't get addressed or they don't get recognized. Um, they, they take a beating too, even though they're not swinging a tool every day, right? It's, it's support. It's, uh, working, the the and here's, here, yeah, here's the unfortunate part for the team members. Um, you know, it, it, operationally wise, you get a 16 hour day, right? I, I, as a team member, on an incident management team, you're 18, 20, 22 hours. Jesus. And you're doing it for free after the 16 hour day, because that's what it takes to manage an incident. It's unfortunate, but they often go unrecognized for doing that. Um, so, you know, as an incident commander, um, you know, it's not uncommon to put in a 22 hour day, 23 hour day um, and get up and do it again. Uh, with, with five, six hours of sleep. Yeah. Um, versus coming off the line and it, operationally wise, you might be physically tired, but trust me that, that for all the operational folks out there that have not been on a team or participated on a team as a team member, um, both command general staff or any support position, um, it, they, if you can't do anything, recognize them and tell them thanks because um, they're working a lot longer hours to support you guys out there in the field than um, just 16 hours. They're at it uh, 18, 20, 22 hours uh, just just to keep to keep the folks in the field um, operational and get them all they need. So, you know, I think about that and. You know, you think single resource, you just think of a team member, right? They have home unit duties also. They got a normal job, right? Yeah. It's not like being on a team is um, their only job. They got their home unit calling them all the time. When are you going to be home? When are you going to do? We got to get this done. We got to get that. And I got team members all the time coming to me. Hey, they want me back home. They want me here. And it's pretty stressful. I mean, you know, what is that tools they use coming off of an incident, right? As a, as a team member, um, might not be physically drained, but they're mentally drained. But, um, you know, it's finding, it's finding the right tools in the toolbox or the right, um, plan that you have when you come home instead of just coming home we're done and we're coming home. Yeah. Right. So a lot of that, uh, is, uh, maybe, you know, I think about what is that, right. Come home and you just want to sit there. 
Just stare at the wall. Yeah, turn on the TV and you wouldn't even know what channel you're on, right? You just hear the noise. Um, (laughs) It's all just static. Yeah. You're watching static on the TV. No, I just, I I just think, um, you know, have have a good plan, have a good exit strategy when you know you're coming up on your timeout, whether you're operational or your support on a team, um, just have a good plan. Just try and put something into play by the time you get home. Um, that you don't just sit there for your time off because the next, the next role is coming again. Teams get a little break in between, you know, they get a couple weeks off in between before they get mobilized again. Yeah. But your home unit duties don't stop. Your home unit duties don't stop, but the operational folks, you know, they're back to back, back to back, back to back. So they mm-hmm. roll right out, you know, they get their, two, they get their days off and they come right back up on the boards and go where a team gets, you know, they have a mandatory time down and usually it's two, two to three weeks before they get mobbed again, if it's busy. Um, so they get a little bit of time, but they got home do their regular jobs also. But the operational folks are back to back, back to back, back to back, back to back all summer long, you know, and that's, that takes a toll in itself, you know? So again, just have a good plan. Also for your operational folks out there, next time you give, well, think twice before the next time you give the comms unit leader or the med unit leader or the logistics guys over there at supply some shit or finance, especially everybody bitches right. about finance, but just keep in mind that they're working their asses off too. They are They're They're yeah. doing, I'll guarantee you, um, they're doing every bit of, um, 18, 20 hour shifts, just one to get you paid and too, just to support the incident. So, oh, yeah. you know, I couldn't imagine running logistics for a type two incident. Jesus, man. It just uh, doesn't end. I mean, it's just, it's, you could be up 24 hours a day, right? Oh yeah. It's like, but, at what point do you just say, fuck it and pound some coffee and just keep going for 48? Correct. <laughs> correct. So there's times I have to tell them you're, I don't want to see you till nine o'clock tomorrow. <laughs> right. Go I don't want to see you till nine o'clock. My logs chief. I don't want to see you till nine o'clock tomorrow. You know? So Jesus, man. I mean, they go, they work hard and, they, and a lot of time they don't get the recognition, you know, and, and, uh, and hot shots always need chain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, oh man. So I guess, uh, so why did you get out of it? This is going to be one of those questions I was going to ask you tonight. It's like, why did you get out of doing the, the IC business? <laughs> so there's a couple, couple reasons. So, um, I guess one being, you know, running a, being a hotshot superintendent for almost 20 years. Um, I, I guess I could, I would call it uh, the same type of environment, right? You're like, um, you're ma- you're managing a team or you're managing, you're running a crew. You're right? managing chaos. You're, yeah. But, but again, it's, it's, uh, you would hope we're all grown up, but we're not. It's like, you're, you're, you're managing a daycare center and that's not, it, it's not that drastic, but it, you would be surprised. Um, it, it's, it's all, all kinds of egos, all kinds of different behaviors, right? Whether they like you as an IC or they don't like you as an IC, I've had to work for people I didn't like regardless, um, or care for, but, um, they were good. They were good, um, managers, uh, good supervisors in that, but, um, you know, um, part of it is just, um, part of it was the management of the team, but the biggest thing was being held hostage to a fire season. Um, 
biggest piece was sitting and waiting. Are we going to get mobilized? Are we going to get earlyed up? Are we going to get this? Are we going to get that? The whole your command and general staff calling you. Well, are we going? Are we not going? What's going on? Are we going to get called? Are we not going to get called? Right? Shit or get off the podcast. You're all, I don't know. Right? I don't have the answer for you. I wish I did. Um, But a lot of it is uh, giving up. uh, You're giving up a lot. You're giving up a lot. When you hire on as an operational person, you hire on to go to fires. That's what you're doing, yeah. right? You sign up. God, sign me up. I'll get on the truck. I'll go. Right? It's a management team. They all got other jobs, but they all know the importance of the mission and supporting it, right? So they, they, they go the distance on the team side, too. So I get that. But one, one of the reasons was really was being held hostage by, one, a coordinating group a fire season, a rotation, and that, for God's sakes. I give up three months of six months. I give up three months of five months, five month hunting season, right? Yeah. So 40 years I've done that, right? And uh, I don't know, I was sitting there. Even fourth, though Endow's not giving us tags this yeah, year. Yeah, even though Endow's didn't give me no tags. <laughs> three years in a row, yeah. for me, no tags. I don't know who got tags out there from Nevada, but I didn't get any. <laughs> Whoever won that Silver State tag. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> you know, I lose three months of what I love doing. Right. Yeah. And uh, I've given it up for 40 years and 41 years. And at New Year's Eve, I said, God dang. I said, it's my 41st fire season. I said, what are you, what are you doing, Ron? And uh, I said, you know what? I said, maybe it's time I just take a break. Right. But I guess another factor is, um, one is agency administrators nowadays. Um, for any agency administrator listening, anyway, um, I'll just use a couple incidents. You know, uh, I, I had the team out on uh, on an incident in um, on the closeout on my review. The team got marked lower because the agency administrator thought the team needed. Um, needed uh um team team building exercises because you just ran a fire i don't think there's a greater fucking team building exercise than managing a fire so the agency administrator went direct to one of my sit unit leaders and got information right and and i said yeah that's okay you can go to them well that that particular day the sit unit leader was off just not having a good day. Maybe we all have bad days, right? So the agency administrator took it that there's something wrong and maybe the team needs a team building exercise, right? So they um, rated us lower and that was their reason. And I said, time out. I said, time out. I said, you know what? I said, uh, so I said, um, agency administrator, I said, you just taught me a lesson. Oh, what is that lesson? I said, no more will any agency administrator go to my team directly. You will come to me if you need anything. I said, they just happened to be on a day, bad day. Maybe she had a bad day. Yeah. Maybe she wasn't feeling good. I said, now you marked us down because she just happened to have a bad day. Everybody's got good days and bad days. Correct. Sometimes you have shit days. Yeah. Oh, well, we feel your team needs to have team. Who are you to even know about my team or know how we operate? And you've been working with these same folks for yes. quite a while. It's not oh, like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, usually it's the same team, same people. I said, no longer will you go direct any of my team members. You come to me. Oh, oh, 
okay. That what all right. Yeah, no more. Ever. Another incident was um I won't use the fire name, but because we don't <laughs> want to use names because that'll be a dead giveaway. Um our letter of delegation, you know, was you will wear masks everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Copy that. And we said, all right. And we, okay, we're okay with that. I'm okay with that, right? But when on closeout, we got rated lower because the agency administrator felt we were talking about them because we were wearing masks and they couldn't see what we were saying. So we got rated lower. We felt you were talking about us because, you know, we couldn't tell because you were wearing masks. So you rated me at a four or a three because you felt when you're wearing your mask and you're talking, I could have said the same about you. You're talking about us. But no, they felt we were talking about them. And I said, time out. This is too much. They said, that's it. What, uh, Did they file a hurt feelings report? Yeah. And no, and that was true. That's true. They go, we felt you were talking about us because you, you know, we couldn't tell you, but behind your masks, you're the one that made us wear the masks. Yeah. Anyways, enough of that. Um, well, it's like, I understand enough the utility. of that session there. I understand the utility of wearing Still a mask, makes me you know, cranky. but God, the human interaction when you, when we were going through COVID and you couldn't like read facial expressions. There's a lot of shit going yeah. on right here when you're having a conversation like we are right here, right? Yeah. We're reading our faces, getting an idea of like emotion and context and all this other shit, all these little nuances of our conversations. When you remove like three quarters of that with a mask. What do you do? How, what, what do you do? It's like communicating on text. Right. If I went away verbally. And I told the agent's administrator, I said, even if, even if um, I was talking about you, I would have leaned over and still said the same thing. It wouldn't have mattered. Yeah. Uh, it's how we communicate. And, uh, you know, they felt, they felt intimidated, I guess, maybe that. Or, or insecure. They're, they're talking about us. Right. So yeah. that's just a couple of reasons why. I mean, it's just, it's, it's overboard. Right. So. So time, stress and bullshit is why you much. got it. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Pretty much going forward. I'll tell you what, going forward, I guess, uh, good luck with the AAs out there and, um, and good luck to the future incident commanders. Damn. Yeah. I mean, if you were to go back and do it all over again, what would you change? If anything, I wouldn't change a thing. Not a fucking thing. huh? Not a thing. I had a good ride. Um, 33 years in the hot shots, 20 as a superintendent. I don't know how many in management now. I think 14 to 20, 14 to 14 to now in management. Um, I left the hot shots um, one because my time was up. All all of my older generation were retiring there. They retired out. They, um, it's kind of like an old horse, right? The new generation or, newer kids, the new superintendents, we had nothing in common. They didn't have my values. I didn't, I didn't have their values. Um, kind of like a culture clash almost. Yeah. I I would say a culture class. We could be in the same room and I don't have, I I have nothing in common with them. Zero. Yeah. Absolutely zero. Right. Um, so 
it was time. I had a good ride. Um, I brought a lot of kids home safely, uh, fought a lot of good fire and it was just time. I thought, well, I'm a 57 out here pretty quick. So I better figure out, uh, management. I better figure out what, what my next GS level is or what my next job is to promote to. So, but I did, I had a really good ride. Um, and I met a lot of good friends, uh, a lot of good relationships, worked for great, worked for and around great superintendents. Um, and it, it just, it, it, I don't think you could ever, um, I don't think you could ever change. I would never change anything that I did. Um, and it was good. So, you know, 41 years, I'm good. I get vested with the state of Nevada here in July. And uh, I, I quit um, all my team stuff. I stood down from the team stuff. Um, and I'll pick and choose what fires I want to go to and not have to go to or not no no need to go to. Yeah. And all, pick and choose and do whatever the hell you want, really. And they all go out. They all go out. So now I just kind of come go to work and come home, which is kind of nice. Except now I have a remodel of a house to do. So <laughs> uh, buy a house, they said. That, that's fun, part of said. it too, though. We we have a we got a remodel and we got some home things to do. I got some home things to do. Um, so it's just a plan for the exit strategy, right? So we all say, let's have a plan. So I'm just kind of planning it out. So that's good, man. Well, that's another thing too, is like, I think that the overarching at like theme of the episode is taking care of yourselves and like taking lessons of the past from your guys's careers and applying them and kind of I guess putting it out there for future generations of fires. Cause that's our job as firefighters or if we're related to firefighters or whatever, it's the previous generation lays the foundation for you to build upon better for the next generation. Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 Like, um, she always coins a phrase that I told her is there's no, no hall of fame, no wall of fame. No, there's none of that. Oh yeah. Um, they'll forget who you are two months after you're gone. You know, you could be, uh, you could be a well-known firefighter for 30 years and two months after that, they're all, who's that? Who is that? Who was that? You know, there's no wall of fame. It, you all hear that out there. There's no hall of fame, no wall of fame. So make good decisions and, uh, choose the right path. Um, take care of your families, take care of your kids. Um, they come first. Uh, if I had anything to say, don't sell your soul to the agency. Don't sell your soul probably to firefighting. It is a good sport though. It's probably one of the best sport, sports on earth. Um, the ultimate team sport. It is the ultimate team sport. Um, and it's pretty awesome, uh, career. So, uh, but make the right decisions and choose the right paths. And just remember every fire goes out on its own. Um, we all like to want to think we want to be on every fire or, you know, all the big fires and that, but I would just tell you, put time aside for yourself and your families. That's a big thing, man. Taking care of yourselves. And I think that moving into this new seat, this season, well, I mean, we're already balls deep in this season. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Yeah. Um, I, the importance of taking care of yourselves, especially when we're describing 
all of the issues that we're currently facing as a fire community, a fire family, whatever you want to call it, as being a wildland firefighter, the doing more with what less, the the stall stalling of everything on Capitol Hill right now, and just the mental health things, all these things that are just boiling up and kind of just striking a raw nerve to where people are just pissed. I think it's important that we need to learn how to take that angst and that cynicism and all that stuff that's festering and turn it into something that we can weaponize to do good for ourselves and taking care of ourselves and really being aware of it. With that being said, I mean, do you guys have any tools in the toolbox that you could pass on to our latest generation of firefighters or the people that are out there fighting fire like boots on the ground right now? For me, um, we all have high expectations. We wouldn't be in this job, in this line of work, if we didn't set the bar high. Or we didn't love it. We didn't absolutely love it. And love our high expectations. We pride ourselves in that. And one of the hardest things I ever did was align my expectations with reality. My expectations are here. Reality is here. Yeah. And think of all the frustration that happens between your expectations and truly what reality is. Mm -hmm. And once you align those, as hard as it is, it'll save you a lot of frustration and wear and tear. And the other thing is, we can't control what's going on with the Infrastructure Act or when the pay raises will go in. We can't control this fire season. Nope. The only thing we can control is how we let it affect us and learning how to recognize I can't control what this jackass is doing or what this policy has done. Referring to my knife hand incident. Your knife hand incident. (laughs) Absolutely. Or the Qigong. Or (laughs) this, this piece of line I got stuck on. Yeah. The only thing I can control is how I let it affect me. And that's really the only thing that's absolute and that other than vodka and that we're <laughs> in control of. Very true. As far as like some tools of, in the toolbox, uh, any like additional tips and tricks for us to like kind of not necessarily cope, but be better prepared for this, this season and future seasons. Any words of advice or tools that you can point us in? I think just not being hard on yourself, recognizing that you are doing the best job that you can with what you have to work with, with whatever situation that you've been given. Um, go easy on yourself and 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 recognize the sacrifice that you're making and that there's a lot of good people out there that recognize that sacrifice also. Absolutely. I'd just say, uh, I would probably say for the operational folks out there, um, one, uh, just, you know, this year make some good decisions. I know we're, uh, we're dry all over the nation period. It's going to not all come at once. It's going to walk through its cycle, I believe. It'll come from the south 
and come up through the Great Basin, come up through California into Oregon, Washington, uh, and then Montana and that. But for all the folks out there, I would just say um, treat today, treat this summer like uh, every fire's extreme fire behavior. And uh, when minute you step off that truck to take action, just make sure um, your guards up, take care of your folks. Um, have some good uh, crew cohesion. Um, you guys all need to work together to come home safely. And if you have a bad day at work, uh, what I would tell you, we all have those. You have a bad day at work. Don't come home. Don't bring it home to the family. You walk out that door, you let that door shut and leave it at work. That's what I tell you. Um, because nowadays the days can be not so good at work. Um, just from all the politics we're in, uh, the infrastructure, um, just where we're at today, right? Shortages of imp of hiring, hiring stress, um, you know, being able to uh, have a full crew. It all takes a toll on you. And you have a bad day at work. Um, I would just say, don't bring it home with you. Walk out the door and leave it there. How good that. I think the only additional thing that I'd have to say, and I don't think I've really added input because I really have nothing of value to say. I just ask questions and talk on a microphone. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think I'm going to put some input in this one as well. And I think uh, I was thinking about this the other day after my uh, chat with Bree or Casitas. And uh, I think that we need to allow ourselves to be, uh, I guess, uh, understand that it's okay to be vulnerable with each other on our crew, with our fire family. It's like, you got some shit to say, like hash it out. If you got like something that's weighing on you, don't be afraid to be vulnerable with your fire family. It's okay, man. It's, okay. it's okay to mm -hmm. talk to each other. It's less like that whole, uh, peer support thing. Like with the world war II vets coming back home from the European or Pacific theater, they were vulnerable with each other. They're stuck on a ship with each other for, two weeks on their way home after they just did a full battle of the bulge and the invasion of Normandy and all this shit, right? It's okay to do that. You're going to, comparatively speaking, you're going to be stuck with your fire family for six to eight months, right? It's okay to like be real with each other and be vulnerable and just like embrace each other and fucking talk shit out and hash it out. If something's bothering you, just fucking say it, man. And don't bring that shit home. Just like you guys were saying. Yeah. <clears throat> You know, talking helps. It does. Talking helps, especially with people who understand. And chances are, whoever you're talking to might be feeling the same way mm -hmm. and hasn't really said anything. So you don't want things to be bottled up and let it fester. Oh, yeah. Talking it out. Once you talk it out, you can kind of put things in perspective and maybe find your way to resolution or just the fact that once you talked about it, you realized hey, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. But the talking helps. And the other thing is it's okay. You know, we, we help each other up the hill every day on fires. But if you see somebody that's maybe struggling, we can help each other up the hill in other ways too. Oh, hundred percent. Ask, Hey, you doing all right? You don't seem like yourself today. That means a lot. Oh, yeah. 
Well, that's the thing too, is like, you never know, right? You never know when someone's, especially with a hard ass culture like us and we, we just hide everything. Yeah. You don't know what people bring to the table. It's like the importance of like, one of my mentors in Academy said, always be aware of what you're saying in groups to each other, everything. Cause you never know if you're going to be in a situation where that's going to affect somebody positively or negatively. You never right. know who they're going to turn out to be and you'll never ever begin to even comprehend what influence you'll have on that person. Somebody might be having a bad day. You could fucking ruin it. You need somebody to be a kid having a bad day. You can make it better or a good day or whatever. It, it, it's just don't be a dick to the rookie. And if somebody's like having a bad day or struggling, I mean, you could be a dick to a rookie, but whatever. Don't be too bad. <laughs> but you get my drift though. It's like, yeah. fucking be kind to each other. Yeah. Be kind be to kind each to other. Each other. You never know who you're going to Cause you'll find out you probably got something in common. Oh yeah. hundred percent. You all have something in common. hundred percent. Yep. Well, I think that's a good one, but the end of the show, I always give you guys the opportunity to give a shout out to some homies, heroes, mentors. Nelda, what do you got um, for us? Well, I've got a couple, actually. Uh, One of my homies and heroes is none other than Natalie Lynch. She's the assistant helicopter manager on Navajo uh, Navajo Hell Attack. Um, They're down around San Carlos, Arizona, Fort Apache country tonight. And she 57's out on June 30th. Nice. So we've been having a lot of conversations about. Does she have a plan? What that looks like, I think she's got a good plan. There we go. But um, I think it'd be pretty crazy to retire during PL5. But um, that's like the perfect time to retire. You're just oh, yeah. like, hey, I'm just going to make I'm done. It. Yeah, I'm going to make it. You know what? That's <laughs> your looks problem. Like your problem. I'm out. That's an issue. <laughs> um, now she's so cool. She just did some filming with uh, reservation dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, her son-in-law's the producer of that. So she's pretty cool. And then the other one I'd like to recognize is somebody who left us this week. Um, at 3.40 on June 7th, we lost smoke jumper, longtime smoke jumper, um, McCall smoke jumper, uh, Rob Morrow. And a lot of his brothers and sisters and fire family and his family um, are hurting tonight. Um, thanks for everybody who's been there for Rob and his family. And to, once again, the Wildland Firefighter Foundation who's come forward. Um, See you on the other side, brother. Oh, I guess I don't know. I would say, uh, I just say, uh, recognize probably uh, one, the Wildland Firefighter Foundation for all they do. Like to recognize uh, all my past and present that are still at Fulton. Um, All my captains, squaddies that work for me. Um, I think back of those days and Oh, if we could tell stories, we could write a book that you wouldn't believe. Um, and all past hotshot superintendents, um, thanks for your service. All the incident management team members that participate on teams, thank you for all your hard work. Thank for all. Thank you for all your efforts. Um, it does not go unrecognized. Um, so thank you for that. Um, I guess that's about it. Copy that. Well, thank you guys for coming by and thanks for 
coming by and barbecuing with me. <laughs> it was good. Man. Oh, we had a great night, Brandon. <laughs> good. No, thanks for all you do on the show. Nah, this has been great. So tater. I enjoy uh I enjoy listening to you do the to the podcast and to the people that you have on the show. So excellent work and uh, good luck with that beautiful family. I'm going to need it. Oh yeah. You're going to be like, Oh man, if the terrible twos come at 14 months, I'm in for some serious (laughs) shit here. You are. They're back to back too. You have no age difference there. Barely. Oh Oh, man. At least they'll be all out of diapers at one time. Correct. So if you only have these two, then you're good. You only got 20 years, but if you wait, you're in trouble. You'll have 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, cheers. 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 Episode 100. It's good to have you guys back. Yeah. Congratulations Ron, on so episode 100. Thank it you. was an honor and a pleasure. Thank you guys so much. I wouldn't have it any other way to have you guys back. So, All right. Cheers. Cheers. And boom, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is in the books with Nelda St. Clair and Ron Boyer. Episode number 100. I am super freaking pumped about that. It's been a pretty crazy road and what better way to uh, have number 100 in the books than with you too. We talked a lot about uh, some issues that we face as wildland firefighters and the culture and the just overall challenges that uh, they have both seen. And I know I have seen over my short 11 years, but shit, over 41 years of wildland fire experience. That's incredible, man. It, that Undoubtedly, it's getting harder. It's getting less. We're getting less pay, comparatively speaking. We're getting hotter, drier seasons, and we're forced to do more with less. So with that being said, we have some little uh, tips and tricks on how to buckle up for the long haul because these seasons are only going to get harder. They're only going to get longer. They're only going to get hotter and drier. I mean, just like Stephen Prine said in uh, the Pyrocene era that we're entering into, these things are not uh, coincidence. They're just scientific fact. So yeah, uh, two legendary figures in the house tonight uh, on the old podcast. I hope that you take some, take away some tasty tidbits of knowledge and some perspective that they have shared and move on and make change. Be the vehicle of change because that's the only way it's going to get better. We have the power out there. So that being said, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's staying safe. And uh, yeah, keep your heads on a swivel. It's uh, going to get gnarly. I have a feeling it's going to get real gnarly here real quick. With that, special shout out to our sponsors. We've got Mystery Ranch, makers of the finest damn fire packs in the entire fire game. Mystery Ranch built for the mission. Go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check out the Backbone series. We've got Hotshot Brewer. Jeez, I can't even talk tonight. It's late. Anyways, we got Hotshot Brewery, kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause. Go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com for all your kick-ass coffee needs. We've got the ass movement. My buddy Boo's over there. He's uh, spreading the good word about burying your turds. Go over there to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement where you can save 10% off your entire order with the code anchorpointass10 at checkout. And last but not least, We've got the Smoky Generation. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization. And you know, folks, I just want to be clear about something. We don't have any financial ties or commitments to each other. I just believe in Bethany's cause and she has a wonderful organization. So 
with that, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check it out. Y'all know the drill. Stay safe, stay savage. Peace.